You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Thanks for joining us here on NapaBroadcasting.com. We all know that we have many nonprofits here in the Napa Valley and that they do a great deal for our community. They deal with issues like housing, mental health, children's issues, veterans' issues, and health care. And those are just a few of the things that Napa nonprofits do to take care of their community. But what's not covered by these other agencies is the issue of ideas in our community, looking at the divides that silo us today and trying to figure out ways that by coming together in a nonpartisan way, we can create a better, stronger, and more vibrant community. And that by doing so, we can create a kind of multiplier effect for all the good work that's being done by these other agencies. Leading this effort here in this community is the Napa Valley Community Foundation, led by our guest today, Terrence Mulligan. Terrence, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. It's great to have you here. First of all, give for those listeners that don't know, give a little thumbnail of what the Community Foundation's mission is. Sure. Uh, in broad strokes, our mission is to ha- enhance the quality of life for all in Napa County. And the way that we do that is by partnering with generous individuals at all levels of wealth who contribute assets to the foundation, which in turn funds various nonprofit programs all throughout the county to the tune of, in a typical year, three to $5 million worth of distributions. So if you thought of us by analogy to the Gates Foundation, which we are not, which is one family's fortune in a box devoted to uh, the common good. We are a localized version of that that is far more democratic. So we don't rely on one family. We rely on hundreds of generous people to back the work of the foundation who have faith in us to identify um, issues and gaps and things that need attention uh, that where um, the application of either financial resources or simply rhetorical attention Mm -hmm. can be beneficial. And one of the things that that created some added value to all of that is the work that you got involved in after the earthquake, working with uh, Napa Valley Vintners. I think this is the last time uh, we had you here. Yeah, exactly. And that was a, a, a great opportunity for us to be of service at a time of you know real need in the community. And we remain grateful for the Vintners lead gift uh, to us, as well as the 500 and some odd additional donors who poured money into our coffers so that we could help several thousand people sort of with immediate recovery and rebuilding from the earthquake. And, you know, talk about gaps. That was a gap that needed to be filled. And I think it's very much in our DNA to be looking for things that um, um, don't get enough attention. What are some of the other things? I mean, obviously, we'll talk about the forum, which is is really the heart of what I want to talk about here, but some of the other things that you're involved in right now. Well, we continue to be very involved on the issue of immigration. Uh, Mm -hmm. Five years ago uh, this week, in fact, we funded a first-of-its-kind study to look at the economic and fiscal impact of immigration in our town, in our valley with the idea that we would foster uh, fact-based civil discourse on an issue that was undoubtedly important, around which there seemed to be a a curious public void of conversation. And on the heels of that study, we've done uh, about $1.8 million in distributions to build a collaborative that has helped 3,000 people uh, with legal services, of which 1,500 have submitted applications to become U.S. citizens, and 612, as of last month, had sworn the oath and become U.S. citizens. Why? Because 
citizenship is correlated with uh, economic mobility and better outcomes for school kids, but it's also a way to build more cohesion in a valley that we see too often as a tale of two cities, up valley, down valley, old families, new families, Latino, Anglo, et cetera. So we're very much uh, in the business of sort of protecting the investments we've made around immigration. And we're also beginning to get involved in housing, which is on everybody's short list of things that need fixing. Talk a little bit about how immigration has gotten, um, now that it is an issue that people are talking about, not always for the right reasons, how that's impacted the work that you do. Well, I think it's had the effect of bringing uh, more attention to what we have done. Um, Interestingly, or ironically, or sadly, I'm not sure what the right (laughs) descriptor is, I personally thought that in 2012, when we did this big white paper on immigration, uh, we had reached a sort of zenith in terms of our uh, shared uh, um, uh, American culture in this land as it relates to our feelings for immigrants. That was the year of Arizona's Show Me Your Papers bill, SB 1070, and some others. And in fact, it turns out uh, we were wrong about that. Um, At least my view is we have reached a new kind of zenith uh, under Uh, political leadership that has, uh, and again, my personal view here, uh, taken pains to demonize immigrants uh, when the facts would suggest that, in fact, they are overwhelmingly making a positive contribution to our economies and our communities across the country. Um, So for us, it has meant that more people are paying attention, which is good, and it means I don't anticipate having too much difficulty in continued fundraising to continue the work of our One Napa Valley Initiative uh, Mm -hmm. partners going forward. Talk a little bit about housing. You mentioned a second ago, and housing is something, as you say, it's on everyone's mind right now. It's the hottest issue, but it's also something that takes big big dollars to address. Yeah, it's a a heavy lift. And so um, no one solution is going to be the silver bullet for housing. I think that the role the foundation might play is to try to come up with some shared principles valley-wide in the same way that the data that we put on the table around immigration fostered Mm -hmm. useful community conversation. Could we not stipulate that um, not everybody who wishes to live in Napa Valley will ever be able to afford to live here because it's beautiful, we're in California, and real estate's just way too precious. But could we say if we looked around uh, the country or looked around California, Are there opportunities to do better? And what does better look like when you try to measure that in terms of the number of units of net new housing we should build to accommodate our workforce, our nurses and our teachers and our farm workers, et cetera? And so just being sober-minded about what what is and what could be, I think, could be a useful role for us to play that doesn't require a king's ransom in terms of your Mm -hmm. grant budget. And if you want, uh, I could also talk about some ideas that we've just begun to explore that would be uh, uh, far less expensive uh, on the margins in terms of adding housing units to the county. Please. Okay. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you for nibbling. <laughs> um, uh, in the city of Napa, there's an ordinance that allows a person who owns a single-family home, such as me, if I wanted to, to put in a, a so-called accessory dwelling unit, right. or ADU. Granny unit. A granny unit in the common parlance. Um, and there's a funding gap there. So if you're just an ordinary working uh, guy like me and you talk to your friendly mortgage broker about that possibility, they'll say, great idea. Um, show me your FICO score and tell me what you have squirreled away in your savings account because the incremental rent that you'll get, let's call it 1200 bucks a month, 
will not be factored into our loan decision uh, until you have amassed two years of run rate. And so there's a kind of classic chicken and egg situation there. And so what we're beginning to explore is whether the foundation could create a pool of capital that would assist homeowners at their option who would like to have additional income and like to be part of a private party solution to a public crisis, uh, which is housing, where you've got what appeals to me, and then I'll stop, is the idea that um, there are zero land acquisition costs. And uh, it's sort of bulletproof from a CEQA lawsuit standpoint. So when I th- when I say affordable housing, people think of the next 400-unit or 50-unit thing that's going to go in that's greenfield, where neighbors might be rightly concerned about the impacts on traffic, congestion, et cetera. And very often, California's Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA for shorthand, is used as a way to slow those uh, developments down. They take years. The funding is Byzantine and complicated and fraught. This would be a way to do things uh, much more nimbly and much more quickly that really empowers residents uh, to be part of the solution. How do you prevent those units from being used for shorter-term rentals or or Airbnb or the equivalent? I mean, obviously, there are certain minimums of 30 days as far as that goes. But how do you prevent them from being used for those purposes and not really becoming part of the housing stock? Well, here I need to offer a disclosure statement, which is my next phone call, because I talked to my board about this last week, is to spend some money on my very knowledgeable exempt organization attorney in San Francisco. Because the only way this could work is if you could make uh, two things binding upon the homeowner. In consideration for a very low interest loan, you make me these two promises as the community foundation. Number one, you'll take me out with your mortgage lender after a period of two or three years, i.e. once the chicken and eggs dilemma has been resolved. And number two, you will commit for as long as you own that property to rent it to either these categories of profession or these levels of income. And naturally, there would need to be some some checking on the back end to make that possible. But um, if it is indeed lawful for us to, to enter into that kind of arrangement, that's, that's a role that we're going to be seriously exploring in the months ahead. All of this is a good segue into talking about these community forums that you've put together yeah. to talk about some of these issues, some of the things that divide the country, divide neighborhoods, divide communities. I, I, you know, I've talked to it's, it's, it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of our, our local political leaders and, and did a class actually last semester which was really about local politics in the digital age. But one of the things we talked about is how some of the divides in the country, some of the political divides, are or are not filtering down to local communities. Yeah. And, and essentially, that's what you're looking at here, the way in which some of these divisions are affecting and impacting the community. Yeah, and at the risk of sounding more like a Pollyanna than I normally than I customarily do, I think the intent behind this is to bring people together to have um, – Uh, community-wide conversation on issues that are important, that are fraught, that aren't always easy to talk about, which promise um, to build more civility and more uh, collaboration across the valley. In a way, you could think of it like, how do we inoculate Napa, which has a rich tradition of neighbors lending a hand, of people working across parties to uh, advance the common good? How do we protect Napa in this time of really uh, divisive national feeling uh, and um, move the community forward. And so that's that's really what's motivating us mm-hmm. to try to um, invite the public out to hear different speakers on different topics uh, right. to create that space. The, the other part of that, I mean, there's, there's two ways to look at it. I was, you know, thinking about this and just listening to you a minute ago. 
is that one, isolating, insulating, inoculating, as you say, Napa from all of this. But the other way is using the spirit that has always been part of Napa in creating a kind of model, not so much a bubble, but a model mm. that other communities can use and, and, and really kind of laying out a predicate that we can export to other communities mm. in some ways. Yeah, I like that idea. Uh, and I, I'm sure we're not the only community organization in America that's trying to work towards, uh, um, you know, more public discourse that's fact-based, that's respectful, and that crosses party lines and is nonpartisan and so forth. Um, but I do think there's something special at work in this place, and I say that as a relative newcomer, although I've been here for 13 been here years. For a while. <laughs> I don't. Th- I don't think I get my local stamp until year 15 or 20. And what I observe is just, uh, as compared to the place I used to work, which is Silicon Valley, um, is just the institutions that support um, this kind of uh, collaboration seem more robust here than in some other places that I've lived and worked. And uh, I like that idea. Right. It's interesting, though, because, if you, again, I don't think I finished the point before. If you talk to some of the local electeds who go door-to-door during campaigns in nonpartisan offices, one of the things they will tell you is that they knock on the door. You know, the first step, you're a Republican or a Democrat. Yeah. Well, it's a nonpartisan race, and, then you know, it's fixing the streets or land use issues, whatever it might be. That's all fine. You're a Republican or a Democrat. Yeah. That it's hard to get away from that. It's really difficult in this day and age. It is difficult, and as I think about the the forum that we're hosting this Thursday, which is around media and you know the role of journalism in a sort of divided land when you've got WikiLeaks and social media and all this other stuff, I think it's been true for a long time and richly documented in the social sciences that we have a thing in humankind called confirmation bias, mm-hmm, yes. where each of us seeks out uh, beliefs and information that affirms our own view of the world. What's different in the last, I don't know, choose a number, five years, 10 years, is that the uh, technology and media has changed so profoundly that confirmation bias is now um, sort of jet-fueled into the stratosphere. And so... You never have to leave your bubble. You don't have to leave your bubble. And that's just really deeply troubling uh, to me, that we can't find uh, conversation with people uh, who don't share our views, that we can't do so amicably, that we can't disagree. I mean, as was it? Moynihan, who said everybody's entitled to their own opinions, opinion, but, but not their, not their own, their own facts, data. Right? You know, that's uh, again, call me nostalgic, but that's sort of what I what we hope to to foster is this idea that look, we you know I've got as I like to say I've got Republicans on my board and Democrats on my board and everything in between. I've got people who every year from the board go to Burning Man and to Bohemian Grove and everything in between. And uh, that gives us greater purchase. It gives us greater street cred when we try to take on an issue like uh, immigration, for example. And by God, if it can happen in our boardroom, why why can't it happen in other places? I want the names of those that go to both. (laughs) Once the mic is off. Yeah. 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 Um, talk a little bit about the forum you mentioned, uh, and it's one of the reasons I, I wanted us to talk today, that uh, there's the second of these forums coming up this Thursday at, in Yountville. Yeah, so uh, um, Thursday the 4th, 530 to 7.30, we still have about 50 seats in the 250-seat hall open, uh, and I can tell people how to um, sign up if they wish to. Um, it, the, the, the title for the talk is Media Democracy and Civil Society in the Era of WikiLeaks and Disinformation and Fake News. So that's, that's quite a buffet of uh, issues and, and concerns. 
And the speaker is Phil Bronstein, who many people know because he was the editor of The Chronicle, but he's the executive board chair of an outfit that, Jeff, I know you know, called the Center for Investigative Reporting, which is, in effect, a nonprofit newsroom. And you may remember, sort of, again, um, ironic with the passage of time, that when Phil's colleague Robert Rosenthal came to Napa, 10 years ago at our invitation, and you interviewed him. At the time, the fretting over the media space was, well, what do we do to support the business model when all the ads are going to Google and Facebook, or, or not Facebook even, probably Craigslist at the time. And now the threat is something that's more existential in nature, I think. And so he's going to talk about all that in conversation with Sean Scully, the editor of The Register. And um, we hope to have lots of people come out and participate and contribute to the conversation. That's great. And talk about some of the things that are coming up in in future months. Yeah, so we program four times a year. So coming up in the fall in September on the 7th, we have Randy Capps, who's the demographer from the Migration Policy Institute who conducted our uh, immigration study of five years ago. And he'll be coming to give us an update on recent federal changes and state and local responses to those changes. Um, And, you know, that's a hot ticket because there's clearly so much still in play, so much that we don't know. And he brings uh, a lot of analytical rigor and insight from his perch in the nation's capital uh, to that conversation. And then in November, my friend and colleague Judy Belk, who's the CEO of the California Wellness Foundation, which is a big statewide healthcare uh, uh, philanthropy, will talk about life uh, after the possible repeal or the maybe repeal of Obamacare or, or the ACA and what that means for uh, Californians, uh, if it is repealed or if it's right. replaced with something different. What's so interesting about these, I mean, besides the, the fact that they're interesting in and of themselves, is how the landscape in all three of these keeps changing. I yeah. mean, the media landscape is changing constantly. I mean, between now and Thursday, it could change again. Yeah. And certainly looking out towards things like immigration and health care, between now and September and November, who knows? Yeah, I feel a little bit, uh, you know, generally speaking, we tend to book these, you know, book is the wrong right. word. I mean, people donate their time. We don't pay anybody to come. But we, we try to program these in, say, November, December for the year ahead. Right. And it's always a challenge to think of a, what will be relevant and interesting in nine months' time, and all the more so in this climate, which is why the um, titles for each of these talks is sort of broad enough to be evocative of the general matter at hand, but also broad enough to accommodate <laughs> whatever happens between now <laughs> exactly. and then. Exactly. How can people get information about these? How can they attend Thursday night if they would like to? What should they do? We'd love people to show up. So the simplest way would be to call our switchboard at the global headquarters in North Napa, <laughs> 254-9565, extension 17 or 17 will get you to my colleague, Nikki. And Nikki is keeping the RSVP list. Um, we are hoping against hope that people will uh, pre, pre-register, and we're asking people to pre-register so we can know who's in the house and whether the fire marshal needs to put up a red right. flag. Um, and um, that's probably the simplest way for people to get in touch Great. and sign up. And it's Thursday night, community hall. In the town center at, at uh, you know, doors open at 530, light refreshments, and the program begins at 6. Great. Well, I thank you so much for coming in and uh, giving us an update on all of this. Terrence Mulligan, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate being here. Thanks for listening to NapaBroadcasting.com, Napa Valley Radio for the way we live now.